We've reached a milestone in coming to Mark 16, 1 through 8, where we have a remarkable paragraph bringing the gospel of Mark to a conclusion on the note of Jesus crucified, buried, and risen. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that place. Let's listen to the text. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. One of the emphases we've tried to bring in the study of the Gospel of Mark the, the summer Wednesdays has been the importance of looking at the structure of the Gospel. And we want to take one final look at the literary structure of Mark. Mark opens his Gospel abruptly. There is no Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark. For the knowledge of what happened in connection with the birth of the Lord Jesus, we are dependent not upon Mark, but upon Matthew and upon Luke. There is no account of the Incarnation. For that we're dependent on the Gospel of John. Mark begins abruptly by simply bringing on the stage John the Baptist and Jesus and the interpretation of the significance of these two central figures in the story of redemption is defined by the scripture, particularly in Isaiah 40, that God had commissioned his messenger to make a declaration in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And so that text drew attention to the wilderness and its significance, to the messenger who heralds the coming of the Lord, and to the Lord himself. And then Mark tells the story in 1, 1 through 13, and we've looked at that carefully. Now Mark concludes his gospel 
as abruptly as he begins it. Mark 16, 1 through 8, is the conclusion to the Gospel of Mark. And it seems to be a very abrupt conclusion. There are no resurrection appearances of the Lord. There are no words from the risen Lord directing the course of the church. As abruptly and as distinctly as the gospel begins, the gospel is brought to a point of conclusion. Now that proved disturbing to some early readers of the gospel. And we're going to discover they sought to make up for what Mark had not supplied. Instead of allowing Mark, the first of our four evangelists, to define how the story of Jesus ought to be told, at least for the Christians in Rome who were suffering persecution and martyrdom from a demonic government. It was felt we ought to conform Mark to what we find in Matthew, in Luke, and in John. But structurally, there is a balance in the telling of the story of Jesus. And I'd like to suggest that the prologue at the beginning and the concluding paragraph at the end are like bookends. And in between the bookends, there is the unfolding of the story of redemption and the presentation of Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of life, who shared all of the human experiences you and I share. Because God loved us so much, he took the created order to himself and came to share with us all that we experience. Now, some of you may have in your hands a King James Bible or some later edition of the Bible, where you find Mark 16, 9 through 20. And the question comes up, what about this account that begins when Jesus rose early? On the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Verse 12, afterward Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them, while they were walking in the country. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. Verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Verse 19, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. It's very interesting that the textual evidence which has come down to us has convinced nearly all New Testament scholars that Mark ended his gospel at 16.8. 8. 
and what I've sought to do for you in that little grocery list that comes under B1 is to summarize the evidence for you. In textual criticism, you don't count manuscripts, you count the quality of the evidence. And it's very interesting that the two earliest copies of the complete Gospel of Mark in Greek, known as Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, do not have verses 9 through 20, but rather bring the Gospel to a conclusion at verse 8. You might be interested to know that when the King James Version was translated, the oldest and the most reliable manuscript to which the translators had access was a codex, that is a book, that we call Codex Alexandrinus, because it was found at Alexandria in Egypt. It is a 5th century manuscript. It is a manuscript that was prepared for the court at Constantinople. It is a very interesting manuscript and a highly reliable one. But these manuscripts that I've referred to under 1A are dated about 350, and they were not known at the time that the King James Version was translated. There's a very important manuscript of the Old Latin Version that was made from the Greek text, Codex Babiensis, the symbol is a K. And the importance of this manuscript is we are able to, even though it's a 4th century manuscript, we are able to tell it was copied from a 2nd century manuscript, which was almost certainly in Greek. It is representative of the text that was known in North Africa, because the difference is in textual form between Cyprian, the great church father from Carthage, and Codex K are negligible. They are virtually the same. That was North Africa. In Syria, we have two copies of the old Syriac Gospels. The Curatonian manuscript is incomplete, but the old Sinaitic Gospel in Old Syriac is complete. It ends at 16.8. Several manuscripts of the Armenian version and the two most important manuscripts from Georgia in the area that we would call Central Russia. And several manuscripts in Ethiopia at the upper regions of the Nile cataracts all end at 16.8. The Church Fathers, Clement of Alexandria, around 200. Origen, the best textual critic in the 3rd century, first at Alexandria and then in Caesarea in Palestine. Cyprian, the great textual critic from North Africa, Cyril of Jerusalem, show no awareness of verses 9 through 20. And Eusebius, our church historian, states that accurate copies of Mark end with 16.8. And he adds that 16.9 through 20 are missing from almost all. 
manuscripts. That's in the 4th century. A hundred years later, Jerome echoes his testimony and states that almost all the Greek codices do not have 16, 9 through 20. So what about these verses? Are they the basis for preaching? Are they the basis for faith? Brenda and I have been identified with youth with a mission. On every piece of stationery that goes out from youth with a mission, you will find Mark 16, verse 15 cited. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. There are many groups that draw upon this material. The textual evidence is against its authenticity. Interestingly, the literary evidence of style and vocabulary based on a comparison of Mark 1.1 to 16.8 on one side and 16.9 through 20 on the other is not consistent with Mark's authorship of these verses. I wanted to have a way of making that clear to you. And so this afternoon, I went to the Greek text, and with the NIV in front of me, so because I thought that might be the Bible many of you had, I literally translated what I found in the Greek text because the editors or the New International Version have made Mark 16, 9 through 20, or rather, I'm sorry, Mark 16, 1 through 8, very literary, very smooth. But Mark doesn't write in a literary way. He uses what grammarians call a paratactic style, and it's not important you should know that word, but what is important is you've heard that style in your children when they begin to tell stories about the third or the fourth grade. They speak this way. And I got up. And after I washed my face, I went down and ate my breakfast. And I went out on the sidewalk. And the school bus came. And I got on the school bus. And, and, and. Now I want you to follow Mark 16, 1-8 in the NIV or the new RSV or whatever you have in your hands. And I'm going to read you what the text actually says, working from the Greek text. Verse 1. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Verse 2. And very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Verse 3, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Verse 4, and when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Verse 5, and as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8. And the women went out and fled from the tomb, for they were trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. None of those ands is picked up by the New International Version because it's not the way you and I would normally, as adults, tell the story. But that's the way that Mark wrote. It's what I might call marketplace narrative. And that's what's characteristic of Mark. But when you go into the text of 16, 9 through 20, you find something very literary, such as Mark himself never wrote. What about the evidence of the synoptic evangelists Matthew and Luke? Synoptic simply means they saw the public ministry of Jesus in the same way that Mark did. Matthew and Luke follow Mark very closely in 16, 1 through 8, and then each goes his own way. In other words, there was nothing more to follow. There was no Mark and account that they had in front of them. But we know that Mark was the source or one of the sources for both Matthew and Luke. The evidence of Matthew and Luke is Mark ended his gospel at 16.8. Now here comes the surprise of the evening. And there ought to be a surprise when you come to the end of a study that's been 13 weeks in length. The surprise is that Mark 16, 9 through 20, isn't the only ending that is found in Greek manuscripts to the Gospel of Mark. Some readers, as early as the second century, felt that Mark ended too abruptly. And so they sought to round off what Mark was saying, and they produced what we call the shorter ending to the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you have a, a New English Bible, I think they print it for you, but most Bibles don't pick this up at all. But I've given you the shorter ending. Take a look at the bottom of your first page. But they reported briefly, that is, the women reported briefly to Peter and those with him all they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now, I'd like to suggest, first of all, that last phrase is a mouthful. They sent, he, Jesus sent out the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That is not Markan dialect. That's not Markan style. That's the style of a very educated person. But it's obvious what's going on with this shorter ending. The angel 
had said to the women in verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The shorter ending indicates that the women acted on the command they were given in verse 7. In fact, in the one manuscript, which has this shorter ending and nothing more, none of the longer ending, that manuscript leaves out completely the second part of verse 8. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Obviously, this account is in contradiction to what is said in verse 8. So what it was was an attempt to kind of round off the Gospel of Mark, indicate obedience on the part of women, and to have a resurrection appearance and a resurrection word from Jesus. Now go to page 2. Unlike the shorter ending, the longer ending, verses 9 through 20, does not appear to have been compiled originally for the purpose of rounding off Mark because it actually interrupts the sequence of thought between verses 6 through 8. Listen to those verses. Don't be alarmed, the young man said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The key verse there is verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This is a backward glance at Mark 14 verse 27 and 28. Jesus predicted the denial of Peter and of the others. Jesus told them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In other words, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus acknowledged there would be a major failure on the part of the twelve. All of them, not simply Judas, all of them would deny Jesus. But the promise was there will be a reunion, a reunion in Galilee in which the relationship between Jesus and his disciples will be restored. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep are scattered, but there will be reunion. So in spite of denial, there is no reason for despair. 
But notice in verses 9 through 20, there's no reference to Galilee whatsoever. In fact, we recognize that in verse 12, afterward Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. That's a reference to the famous walk to Emmaus by Cleopas and his companion on Easter evening, when a stranger joins himself to them, sees how in despair they are, and draws them out, and says, Ought not the Messiah to have suffered and then to be raised from the dead? And they say, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us upon the way? It's right from Luke. And that's the clue to what's going on in 9 through 20. People noticed Mark was not like Matthew and Luke and John. There were no resurrection appearances. It appeared to be incomplete. And so a mosaic was composed. A little snatch from Matthew. A little snatch from Luke, a longer snatch from John, and I've given you in the chart the passages in the canonical Gospels from which this unit has been composed. But if you've been reading Mark with me, you know that Mark tells the story of Jesus vividly. He tells it in fullness. Mark is insistent that you get the detail. But all we have here is a brief summary-type list of the appearances of Jesus. It is clearly secondary. The further problem with 9 through 20 is that there is no smooth transition between verse 8 and verse 9. The subject of verse 8 is the women the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. But if you were to look at the Greek text of verse 9, even though the NIV says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, in the Greek text of verse 9, there is no reference to Jesus. It simply says, and when he had been raised on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary. Obviously, the NIV translators are correct. It is about Jesus. But the subject of verse 8 was the women. The subject of verse 9 is Jesus. And there is no interconnection between verses 8 and 9. Now, what are verses 9 through 20 all about? That's what's really interesting. These verses are united thematically around a single theme. It is the theme of belief and unbelief. And the climax comes in verse 14, where we read that 
Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. It is about belief and unbelief. Notice that in 1611, for example. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she, that is Mary Magdalene, had seen him, they did not believe it. Notice it in verse 13. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Verse 14, he rebuked them for their unbelief, their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he was risen. In other words, very soon, the eleven are going to be commissioned to speak to people to give their witness to the resurrection, to those who have not seen, and to call them to belief. And they themselves were guilty of gross unbelief. Notice verses 16 through 18. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And so it goes. It is about belief and unbelief. It really has very little to do with 16, 1 through 8. It's very interesting, however, in terms of its exposure of the theme of belief and unbelief. So my conclusion is that the form of 16, 9 through 20, the language of 16, 9 through 20, and the style of 16, 9 through 20 show that Mark did not compose this portion of the text we can trace its origin back to the early 2nd century when it was noticed that Mark seemed to be incomplete because it didn't have resurrection appearances. Now, why have I made such a big deal about this? Because I remember well the year or the summer of 1953. I had one year of seminary under my belt. I had been introduced to outdoor preaching, to door-to-door -door calling, to evangelism by a group of assembly of God pastors who had minimal education but had a burning zeal for the Lord. And we had made an agreement since they had only Bible school and hadn't been privileged to go to seminary that I would come back and share with them some of the insights that I had gained from my education. It was in that context that I had come, doing Greek studies, doing textual studies, to understand that 16, 9 through 20 was not a part of the Markan text. I remember the horror. I remember the horror that they expressed, that I should believe such a thing. Now I come to Franklin, 
And I find that there are some pastors that continue to use the King James Version. And I would never condemn that. If that's the version their people speak, uh, or read, and are learning and memorizing and so forth, I think it's a mistake because language has changed from the 17th century to the eve of the 21st century. Many words do not have the same nuances they had when Latinizing was one of the major ways that words came into the English language. But I know there are pastors in this community who are preaching and using the King James. And it may be that you yourself have in front of you a King James Bible. I would never mock that. I would never dismiss that as insignificant. But I think it is important that we not preach on this text. You might use it as illustration. You might direct the people to the accounts in Matthew, Luke, and in John that speak of the wonderful appearances of our risen Lord. But it is not the word of God, and we ought to recognize that is the case. It's much more than what the NIV says. In the little note before these verses are printed, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. It isn't simply a matter of manuscripts. It is a matter of form. It is a matter of vocabulary. It is a matter of style. It is a matter of manuscripts as well. Now, what does Mark, in fact, bring before us as he concludes his gospel? And I want you to remember what were the circumstances under which this gospel came into being. Christian men and women were being identified, arrested, paraded through by a magistrate, and herded into the arena. Tacitus tells us there was martyrdom in the early church. To be identified as a Christian was costly. What Christians needed was something that would put backbone in their lives, that would keep them from hiding their faith, hiding their confession, and from seeking to recede into the faceless crowd so they wouldn't be recognized. What does Mark bring before their attention? Mark concludes his gospel by focusing on the visit of the women to the tomb of Jesus and the dramatic announcement of his resurrection. And he emphasizes two aspects of the truth. First and most important, the resurrection is an historical event. The resurrection of Jesus is grounded in history. And when you speak in a religiously plural society like our own, and people try to tell you who are Buddhist or Hindu or belong to some cultic group. You and I are brothers and sisters. It is not true. 
because what defines us is that our faith is grounded in history. And just as the crucifixion of Jesus is a fact of history, so is the resurrection of Jesus. That is absolutely central, and it was central to the evangelist Mark. There is an identity between the one who was crucified and the one who was risen. Verse 6 is emphatic on this point. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. This is the historical Jesus. That Jesus has risen. That Jesus is not here. See the place where they laid that Jesus. And you have reference to death, to burial, and to resurrection. That's crucial. The second aspect that Mark brings us face to face with is that the event of the resurrection is open to understanding only through a word of revelation that is received in faith. The works of God, the decisive interventions of God, are not always recognizable on the surface of things. An historian looks at the Exodus. He knows that Egypt at the time was the mightiest empire that had ever existed. How a slave people could depart from Egypt is simply an enigma. But the word of revelation accompanies the act of the Exodus. I am the Lord your God who has led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the explanation. God has acted, and God interprets his own action. So it is with the resurrection. The empty tomb does not create resurrection faith. The empty tomb simply raises the question, what happened to the body? John plays on that theme. Mary says to one that she sees and believes is the gardener, if you've taken possession of him and put him elsewhere, tell me where he is, I'll take possession of him. It is the word of revelation, the word of the divine messenger, the young man clothed in white, which is not so much simply a color, but is a reference to the dazzling glory which accompanied the angel. That's the focus of Mark's gospel. And it's a focus we ought to keep always before us. Our confidence, our certainty in the resurrection of Jesus is that God has not only acted, he has spoken. And even as the wisdom of God speaks, I as a child need to be made wise by listening to that wisdom and receiving it. And I believe you ought to do that as well. Now, what's interesting in Mark's account is that it indicates there is a continuity between the past. You seek Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. It's past. And the present. 
he is not here. See the place where they laid him. In the future, he is risen. There is continuity in the scope of redemption. And that was as important to the Christians in Rome as it is important to us. The empty tomb derives its meaning only from the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Now it is the resurrection of Jesus that creates the gospel. Mark began his gospel the beginning of the apostolic preaching concerning Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Why that opening line was made possible only because of Mark 16, 1 through 8. From that, in that perspective, you could begin reading Mark 16, 1 through 8 and almost read the gospel backward. It is the resurrection that is the pivotal event that creates the gospel. Now what about these women who have stood in the presence of the God who acts and the God who speaks? They are overwhelmed with fear. Why? Because there are no human categories we have. Nothing in our experience that corresponds to this. And when you stand in the presence of the God who acts and the God who speaks, overwhelming fear, overwhelming dread is going to be the human response. And that's what Mark stresses. And Mark, interestingly, by focusing upon human inadequacy, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. By focusing upon the lack of understanding and human weakness throws into bold relief. That means so we can see at large the action of God who raises the dead and its meaning for the Christian community. Now let's see if I can put it into perspective for you. The women who came to the garden early in the morning to the tomb where the crushed and broken body of Jesus had been interred were dawn treaders. Their steps are slow and forced. It's only children who don't know the meaning of death who run in a cemetery. But these women knew all too well the brokenheartedness that death brings. We read in Mark fifteen forty one that they had been with Jesus in Galilee. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. These women had been at Pilate's forum. These women were at Golgotha, for we read in Mark 15, verse 40, some women were watching from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome. And these women were on the outskirts of the garden when Jesus was buried. For we read in 1547, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, 
saw where he was laid. They were dawn treaders, impelled by love, but dreading every step that brought them face to face with a reality so painful they would have given anything to turn from it. We see them approaching the garden at dawn. They are dawn treaders. They are bent over, made old before their time, all strength drained from them. The purchase of spices, the intention to anoint the head of Jesus, the body, all in the unconcern until they finally thought, what about the great stone that's at the entrance of the tomb? All indicates they had no expectation of the immediate resurrection of Jesus. Oh yes, they might have believed in the resurrection that would take place at the last day for all of God's people. But theirs was simply a mission of intense devotion and piety. You see, if you love someone, you will minister to that person and you will do so in death as you have done so in life. And these women love Jesus. As I said, their step was slow and determined. When the account is over, they are running as if they will never stop. They flee from that place. They have been shaken as they've never been shaken before in their lives. They're overcome with trembling and amazement because they've stood in the presence of the God who raises the dead. There were no categories. There were no words that could express what they had experienced and what they felt. The dawn treaders were overcome by uncontrolled dread. You see, because with the resurrection of Jesus, the perception of reality changes. The women's assumption was everything remains the same. Birth, toil, death, and grief. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. These women were broken-hearted. They were scarred and torn by all they had seen. Tears and broken-heartedness are built into the human experience, especially in the presence of the experience of death. Their assumption was life had no more mysteries. Death is not mysterious. It's simply a fact of life. It's as, as a friend of mine spoke to me on the telephone from Texas. And as he asked about my health, he said, well, every one of us has an appointment 
that has to be kept. And that I understood very well. Death is not mysterious. It's simply a fact of life. And consequently, the women were convinced that they were to seek Jesus among the dead. But God confronts us with his truth, expressed through the startling words of the angelic messenger. Jesus is to be sought, not among the dead, but among the living. You see, death's scorecard recorded its first defeat. The dawn treaders were seeking Jesus in the wrong place. Mystery, the surprising development of the stone rolled away. The emptiness of the tomb itself is unraveled only by revelation. I pondered how I might make this clear to you. I think most of you will be able to see this. It's a piece of fabric. Let it stand for the fabric of human experience. But this fabric has been ripped and torn. It has been unraveled, as it were. Now, you can see it has been badly scorched. But who was responsible for that? When did it occur? What's the significance of all of the singes that indicate there has been a tearing of the fabric of human experience? Only I can tell you that, because I was responsible for the burning of that hole in this piece of denim. You see, you need a word of revelation in order to understand what has occurred to this piece of fabric. In the very same way, we need a word of revelation, and that word is so clear. Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. You're looking in the wrong place. See the place where they laid him. You see, God is revealed as the God who raises the dead. And that's the new dimension of reality that every one of us must confront, even as these women confronted it. With the resurrection of Jesus, everything changes. Even when it appears, it appears that nothing has changed. A second insight I carry away from this account is that with the resurrection of Jesus, the sphere of ministry changes. The dawn treaders ministry to the dead was an expression of ardent devotion. They loved Jesus. But the angel also said, Go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you 
into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. What they discovered was their ministry to the living was an expression of urgent concern. Peter has not been mentioned in the Gospel of Mark since chapter 14, which records the shameful denials by which Peter distanced himself from Jesus. How easy it would be for you and for me to read the account of those denials and say, Peter has been disqualified from participating in the triumph of the resurrection of Jesus. But God confronts us with his compassion. Peter is forgiven. And in the resurrection of Jesus, you and I discover a basis for forgiving one another. You see, the sphere of ministry has changed. It's ministry to the living because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now what the angel said was, Go and tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And that's so interesting because Galilee was where they lived. You see, they were to discover Jesus not in a holy pilgrimage to some sacred spot like the garden tomb, but they were to discover Jesus, the risen Lord, precisely where they lived. Where do you and I live? That's where we are to discover Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote The Voyage of the Dawn Treaders as part of the Narnia Tales, how King Caspian sailed through the magic waters to the end of the world. The last line of the work is the dream is ended. This is the morning. Let's put our own spin on that. The nightmare is ended. This is the morning. That's what Mark 16 is all about. Will you stand with me and let's lift our praise to the Lord. Lord Jesus, risen Savior, how grateful we are that we discover you precisely where we live. It's appropriate that we should love those whom you have given in a special relationship to us and expressed ardent devotion in the moment of death. But the far more urgent concern we recognize is ministry to the living, the expression of forgiveness, the wonderful word of restoration and reunion and reconciliation. 
Father, keep us from feeling that we have been denied some blessing because we've never been able to go on a sacred pilgrimage to a holy place. You've placed us here. And Jesus is in our midst. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for the reality of knowing you, Father, the God who raises the dead. We speak so many words. Let us stand in your presence and be stunned into silence. And out of the depth of the awesome encounter with you, then let our testimony, our witness, our word be shaped. Thank you for your servant Mark and his faithfulness, strengthening the people of God and strengthening us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and to the praise of your glory.